Hey there, my name is Hugo Prince. I'm the host of the Road to the IPQ, Le Podcast des Entrepreneurs Aguerri. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate Um, I also want to let you know that the podcast, Road to the IPO, is not available in all the other platforms. iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify. And please, please, rate the podcast on iTunes. Leave a comment. A comment. Let me know if it's good. And thank you. Let's start the show. is in English and it's a special edition because I have uh, the great honor to have on the show Derek Fish, TV host of Breakfast Television. Hey Derek, how's it going? Good man, how are you? Fine, thank you. Thanks for contacting me Hugo, I appreciate it. Yes, I appreciate your time too. My pleasure. So for those who don't know you, can you introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Derek Fage. I'm the host of Breakfast Television Montreal. I'm in my, it'll be four years at the end of this year that yes. I've been here in, in Montreal hosting the show. It, I mean, it was, of course, a great honor to be asked to come and host a show in, you know, what I consider the most beautiful city in the entire country. It's a, uh, and, you know, I'm not new to Montreal. Yeah. I, you know, growing up in Ottawa, we were here all the time. You know, we didn't, we didn't have concerts that came to Ottawa. Heck, they didn't have a hockey team when I was growing up until <laughs> yeah, 91, 92 was the first season. So if we wanted to see sports, you know, come for baseball, come for hockey, come for concerts, this is where we, and it's only, it was only two hours away, yeah, right? So it was a fun road trip. For everything us, happens you know. in Montreal at that time, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, Derek, um, I'm really glad to have you on the show. Before we talk about television and you being a host, I want to talk about your childhood. Okay. You're going to talk about your journey because I watched your TEDx and I'm really inspired by that. So, what happened in your childhood? Can you explain it to us? Yeah, it was an interesting childhood because yeah. it was a, a mix of um, being incredibly well supported and uh, a mix of having some overcome some big challenges and obstacles so i'll start you know at birth uh, i was born with uh, a fairly rare medical condition i yes. was born with what's called uh, an imperforate anus which means yeah. i was born without the actual anal opening yeah. and i was born without a sphincter muscle which really meant for the rest of my life uh, that i would be incontinent yeah um, so I had to wear diapers till about the age of, of 13. Yes. Uh, the early years wasn't a big deal. Like any other child, you wear, you wear diapers and it wasn't, uh, wasn't an, an issue whatsoever. But certainly my, you know, my, my, my parents, they had to deal with it more than I had to, you know, yeah. in, the, in those first couple of years because there was a lot of complications. There was a lot of trips to the emergency room. I had a colostomy at the time, which is when they uh, put an incision in you and they take out a, um, some of your intestine. They actually cut it and then put a tube on it yes. so you can actually, you know, go to the washroom through that. So I had that for, I think, about the first um, eight months until all the surgery was healed and yeah. uh, I didn't need it anymore. So they, they, they removed that after a while. But, you know, my mom told me horrific stories how you know it would slip out of the tube in, okay. inside me and she would call the doctors and say hey you know what it, it fell off and they said oh don't worry the other one will kick in and it'll be fine well that wasn't the case I was actually I actually had you know fecal matter yes. going inside my body and so I, I had a horrible infection and my mom and dad had taken me to uh, emergency and you know that that was really stressful on them. When was the, the, the when was the time that you really realized oh, I'm different from other kids? When was it that you oh I'm different? Yeah, I would probably say grade one. I mean, yeah. kindergarten. A lot of children are still you know potty training and wearing diapers and not, so yeah. that wasn't a big deal. But certainly, as I got into grade one and grade two, I started to realize that you know I was the only kid wearing diapers, yes. and you know my parents had to approach the school and, and explain the situation. Yeah. Uh, the school was, was kind enough to allow me to use the staff washroom, so I had my own key. I called it the golden key to the staff <laughs> washroom. So, I, and you know, I had special privileges. I didn't have to raise my hand in okay. class to go to the washroom. I was just welcome to, to leave. I would change in the bathroom stall, you know, and at, at gym class, so I wouldn't necessarily always, you know, at any time change in front of the, the rest of the children. So that got 
kids talking, right? Hey, why, why aren't you going to the washroom with the rest of yes. us in the public washroom? Why are you yes. going, you know, why do you have the special privilege of not having to raise your hand and going out? So as kids started to talk and, uh, you know, kids are curious. Yeah. Uh, and I had my, my accidents, um, which were uh, difficult to take because, you know, the kids started realizing that I, I, I had an issue. And they don't think of it logically no, like you don't. do as an adult. So that posed uh, a lot of problems for me. I, I, I got bullied uh, pretty relentlessly at school. Yes, so when you get bullied, how do you feel? How do you feel? Do you think that, like you said, by experience, I also used to be, get bullied when I was younger because look, I don't come from here, but how do you feel? Do you feel like resentment to the other kids? Do you feel like to yourself? Yeah, I think there's a, a mix of uh, personal guilt yes. where you, you put that on yourself or and you, you feel sorry for yourself sometimes yeah. right you know why me why did this happen happen to me because I never knew of anyone else that suffered from the same medical condition yes. uh, one thing that dawned on me and I'm surprised it took me so long but it was into my late 30s maybe even early 40s it, it sort of dawned on me like not one medical professional during that journey of, you know, finally when I could understand, when someone could sit down and explain to me what the problem was, yes. not one person from the medical community said, hey, by the way, you're not the only person that has this. No way. There are thousands of people around okay. the world that have this. As a matter of fact, when it comes to urinary incontinence, there's millions, yes. hundreds yes. of millions, right? But I think that would have been really, really reassuring. And when I tell the story to medical professionals, and I, I, I've toured quite a bit now speaking to medical professionals, you know, for them, sometimes it kind of clicks and like, oh, hey, that that's a great idea, yeah. right? So yeah, I, I, I wish that would have happened. It didn't for me. So it was a lot of confusion. Yeah. Um, when you're bullied, you know, you, you suffer from anxiety. I suffered panic attacks. Yes. I, I had uh, a lot of depression. Um, wanted to be invisible, yeah, you know? Yeah. Uh, there were times when I spent a lot of time alone. And, you know, I had a great imagination, so I didn't necessarily, you know, it, I tended to be in the moment when yes. I was alone. I, I grew up in a great spot. We had a beautiful house that backed onto a creek, so I spent hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of hours in that creek. I mean, it was it was stretched miles and miles. Yes, that was your space. Yeah, it was my space. I was in nature. I always loved nature growing up. Um, it was a place where, you know, if I had an accident, no one's around, yes. right? I'm in the middle of nature and nature doesn't care. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. If you smell, doesn't matter. Doesn't nature matter. doesn't care. So yeah. I felt very comfortable like that. And with my imagination, you know, I pretended I was going through the Amazon jungle or I was a stuntman. It, we had actually had a lot of steep hills that went down to the creek. So yes. I pretended I was like a mountain climber. And I, I had a wonderful time. But it was, it was tough because I also loved people. I always did. Yes. And I was super energetic. Crazy do, amount of energy. Do you fear going, like when you were a kid, do you fear going to school like a Sunday night and say, oh, tomorrow I have to go to school? Oh, do yeah. you fear? It, it was, yeah. I, I, I would lie to my parents yeah. that I had. Uh, I also suffered from uh, a, a lot of stomach issues. Uh, so I'd get a lot of stomach cramps, a lot of diarrhea. And when you suffer from incontinence and you have diarrhea, yeah. it's a terrible mix. Uh, so yeah, I, I lied quite a bit and pretended that I was sick so I didn't have to, to face people the next day, to yes. face the, the kids the next day. Because, you know, like there were lunch hours where I'd come home and the kids would throw me off the side of the, the hill, you know, down to the creek. They, they would beat me up. It, was, it wasn't fun. Yes, yes. What about your parents? I think your parents, your parents were always there for you, your mom and your dad. Um, let's talk about your mom. She always, whenever something happened, she, uh, she was... She wanted to take care of that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, my mom, I, we were very fortunate. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, yes. so we got to come home at lunch, and uh, if ever, you know, something occurred, uh, my mom was a, like a super mom, and she wouldn't put up with it. So yes. my mom would take me back to school. If, let's say it happened at lunch hour. She would take me back to school and then talk to a member of, of the school faculty and explain, hey, listen, my kid got beat up again. My kid's getting picked on. You know, he's getting shamed in the schoolyard. And she would make me tell her, you know, who the students were and worked really closely with, with the school to make sure I, I had as positive experiences as I could. And you know how horrifying it is. I mean, you mentioned you were bullying. You don't yes, want your mom no, you don't or your dad <laughs> or anyone, anyone to, to confront the bullies because yeah. it's just going to make the situation worse. Yes. My mom, though, she said, you know what, uh, could it really be any worse than it is? 
I mean, I and I agreed with her. I, I guess it couldn't really get that much worse. Yes. It was already that bad. Uh, so she made sure that you know they they felt some some responsibility for yes. it. You know, I've always said when I when I talk to young people that one of the most difficult things for me to hear is how there's so much focus on the victim when it comes to bullying. You know, oh, you know, uh, let's get you some medical attention. Let's get you, you know, some counseling. Maybe we should put you on medication. Yeah. It's like, I don't have the problem. No, like, no, no. I, I'm just living my life. It's the bullies that have the problem. Like, yes. why aren't we confronting them and finding out what's going on with them? Why aren't they getting counseling? Why aren't they being offered medication? Maybe because we think that we have to help the victim. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with helping yes. the victim, but there's 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 different way there, there's different roles in the way that we approach each person. And I know it's difficult to approach the parents of a bully, yes. right? Because listen, I have kids. We all think our kids are are, are great and that, that they would never do something like that. I think parents have to be conscious that if if a parent does approach you and talks to you about the fact that your child is bullying someone, it's not an attack on you. Like they're looking for help. Can yes. we work in partnership to see what what the situation is? I would imagine some situations can be rectified, and some situations are probably a matter of I'm sure those parents themselves are not the best of role models, yes. and perhaps that's why. Or we don't know what's going on behind closed yeah. doors, you know, and what what kind of family environment those those bullies have. Because as you say, if you go and tell your kid is a, a bully. Parents will feel ashamed. So, no, my kid, the first reaction is not, no, my kid is a good kid. Yeah, they yeah. get defensive, and, and I understand that. But I, I would just say to parents, just listen. You know, uh, th this isn't a confrontation necessarily. And it's not easy for another parent to go yes. to another parent, no. right, and have that conversation. I, I can guarantee you that. But yeah, my mom was uh, an integral, played an integral part in making sure I, I had the best childhood possible. Yes, and with your dad, you used to have like a, you called your dad when you had an accident and you yeah. have to like have like a, a code. To That's him. right. That's you have right. dad have an accident. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty simple. Yeah. And, you know, to paint the picture, uh, I think when we talk about incontinence, we sort of walk on eggshells a lot of the yes. times. And one of the reasons I wanted to share my story, because, you know, when people think, oh, what, you know, you just had a little bit of leakage or something. No, man, like if I had diarrhea. I'd had it so bad some days I would have to tuck my pants into my socks so it wouldn't leak on the floor, okay. right? I had to like worm my way around the school to find the pay nearest payphone or sneak into the nurse's office to call my dad. And like you said, I'd just call my dad up and I, I'd say, Dad, I, I've had an accident. I need help. And my dad could be sitting across from a, a very prominent client. He was a, a senior partner at a, an accounting firm in yes. Ottawa. And he would excuse himself. He would just apologize. You know, he would say, Hugo, I'm sorry. I have a minor family emergency. We'll pick this up, you know, another time. And my dad would jump in his car. He'd always have garbage bags to line his seats so that I didn't ruin his, <laughs> his upholstery. Uh, and, uh, or we'd cut holes in the bags, you know, and slide them on me. And, you know, my dad would sometimes not even be able to find me in the parking lot because I'm hiding yeah, and he'd have to look yeah. around the parking yeah. lot to find me. So yeah, you know, with that kind of support, uh, it's no surprise that I, I, as difficult a time as I had, I also remind people that I really did have like great time yes. when I was, yes. when I, because you know, it wasn't, it wasn't every day I was bullied. It wasn't every day I had an accident, but the times that it happened, it, it had a great effect on me. And one of the great things with you is that when it happens, you have like a, some uh, great mental attitude, you see? Okay, it's, it happens, but this is an accident in a long time, in a long life. Yeah. yeah. How did you get to that mindset? Yeah, I, 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 I don't think I came by it by myself. Okay. Um, I had very strong-minded parents. Uh, my my dad was, uh, you know, uh, he was sort of relentless. You know, I, my I I called my TEDx talk the relentless pursuit of happiness yes. and my, my dad was relentless in everything that he did yeah. you know if he wanted to play a sport he he was he was the best at it. like he might actually won like sportsman of the week 
at this resort we used to go to yeah. when we were young because he was just good at everything. But it's because he was so highly motivated and he was relentless at everything he did. Things seemed to, to come naturally to him. And, and my mom, as I said, you know, she was she was tough as nails. You yes. know, like if, if something happened to one of her kids, like you better watch out, man. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're going to hear about it. So yeah. I think the combination of my dad being relentless and my, my mom being so tough-minded uh, gave me the strength to get through it. And if I'd have an accident, like you said, you know, I'd have my cry. Yeah. I'd clean up. Uh, it's one, you know, incident in a, in a long life yes. and I'd, I'd forget about it rather quickly and I'd go into sort of that fantasizing imagination mode that I had as a kid and I'd just, you know, play with my toys, go to the creek, you know, find friends to play with in the neighborhood, go and play hide and seek. It was done. Do you feel blessed, blessed that you have good parents? Because not oh. the case for all those, those people. Yeah. yeah I, uh, it uh, it meant everything to me. Yeah, having my and my brother and my sister and then you know my stepsisters and my stepmother after that they were all very understanding. My grandparents, my aunts and uncles. Uh, we had good friends of the family, the Goodwin family, who uh, I called sort of my angels on earth. We went to their cottage every every single summer yes. and spent practically the entire summer up there, and it was like a sanctuary for me. Yes, you know I got away from everyone. They had. Uh, three beautiful boys, uh, Tom Glenn and Dave Goodwin, and they never question anything. I don't know if my uncle, uh, I, they weren't really our uncle and aunt, but my uncle Eric and my aunt Nancy, that's what we referred, that's how close they were yes. to us. I don't know if they ever sat the kids down and talked to them or not, but regardless of whether they did or not, I, I never heard from them. They never picked on me. They never said, oh, you know, what smells, yes. like never a yeah. word. So that was, uh, that was probably the most, beautiful moments in my childhood as far as my memories go is hiking with my mom and dad going to the Goodwins cottage being in the creek being in nature getting away from everything um, yeah without that and and it wasn't just like I said that's why I mentioned everyone because the support system was much bigger than just having a mom and dad yes. it was the aunt and uncle and the you know the grandparents and the close friends of the family the guns and we you know we belonged to this uh, squash club I ended up playing I don't know how I played so many different sports. You I did, played, yeah. yeah, I played like competitive squash and with that kind of medical condition, you know, and somebody that has, um, you know, stomach and bowel issues, sports sometimes makes that situation worse. But I, I and even you I go, you did camping and you just went, Maybe oh, I went to days. summer camp, like <laughs> overnight summer camp for two weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was no way I thought in my mind I'd ever go. Yeah. But my brother and my sister had gone. Yeah. And it was an incredible camp. It was called uh, Camp Otterdale, just outside Smith Falls. And they had everything. You know, and so my brother and sister come back. Oh, we went kayaking and canoeing and sailing <laughs> yeah. and windsurfing and rappelling and archery. And so I finally asked my parents if, if I could go to summer camp. I was, trust me, I was scared to death. Yes. Like I had nights where I would cry myself to sleep thinking, how, how am I going to go to a, a place without my mom and dad around and survive two weeks, right? But same thing, my, my parents did the same thing that uh, they did when, with, with the school situation. You know, I, yes. we met with the camp owner and explained the situation and uh, we worked it out as best we could. It's because you wanted to be like any, any other kid and your, your parents understand, understood that. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I, I, I had certain foods that I wasn't supposed to eat, like yeah. sugar and fried foods and spicy foods. What did I do? I ate sugar and fried foods and oh, spicy yeah. food. Oh yeah, like, you know, we go for ice cream and my mom would be like, you know what's gonna happen if you eat ice cream? You're gonna have an accident. I'm like, I don't care, man. They're eating ice cream, I'm eating ice cream yeah. and I would suffer the consequences. Okay. Heck, to this day, I still suffer the consequences. I, I manage it better when it yeah. comes to, you know, what I eat. Yeah. But there's those times where, you know, say I'm at my cottage or something, everyone's having an ice cream cone. I'm like, ah, screw it. I'm having ice cream. <laughs> and I suffer the consequences. Derek, let's say now you're a parent, you have kids. And let's say somebody is listening or watching to the podcast and say, Derek, I have a kid that have the same medical condition as you. How do I support him? What can you say to those parents? I can say, uh, certainly in the medical field, I think it's getting better. Yes. Uh, I think there's a greater understanding. Uh, there wasn't the internet when I was around, yeah. so there are resources. I'm the ambassador of the Canadian Continence Foundation. We have a, a great website yes. uh, that shares you know, information about uh, urinary incontinence, fecal incontinence, um, you know, new 
medical technology that's out there, uh, medication that you can take? Because some people just think, so for instance, you know, pregnancy is a big one too, yes. where, you know, a lot of women suffer from urinary yes. incontinence um, after pregnancy and they think it's normal. And, you know, they'll talk to each other. Oh, you have it too. And, you know, I, I get leakage. It's not normal. It's not it really isn't. I mean, you, you can, there are exercises you can do. There, there's plenty of different things. So I'd say, first of all, honestly, there are resources available okay. out there, first and foremost, and build a support system around them. Okay. That doesn't just include you and, you know, your partner. That includes the siblings. Yes. That includes your community. That includes your, your extended family. Uh, the school system. You know, teachers want to support. Yes. They really did. I mean, it's not like we approached the school system and they went, well, this is going to be a pain in the butt. No, I mean, they, 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 they were very sympathetic yes. towards the fact because I was the only one in school with this. You know, like, they're, they're, it's not like they went, oh, don't worry, we have other kids that suffer from fecal <laughs> incontinence. I, I was the only one. So uh, the support group is, is so important. And no matter what challenge, right, it doesn't matter what you have. Building a support group, I've talked to so many organizations over the years too you know that work with uh, people with intellectual disabilities yes. what's the most important thing that, that they talk about is building a support group around them right yes. and you won't always have your parents there so you need that extended community support and I, I would say too even outside of parents if you're if you're older like myself yes. and it's come to you later in life yeah, that's I know it's embarrassing yes. I know there's a lot of shame in it but tell like there are people Hugo that don't tell their spouse yeah there are people that don't tell their family doctor because they're so ashamed guess what that hurts you more than it helps you yeah. I know I know it's embarrassing but people understand right so you tell your family doctor you tell your spouse you tell your older adult children even your young children it doesn't matter I yeah. mean my kids knew uh, by the time you know by the time my daughter could understand you know what the medical situation was she, she knew about it tell your colleagues at work all my colleagues at work know no. about it yes. you know and I listen when I first got on TV I didn't I didn't tell my colleagues yes. and I regretted it because I had situations and that put me can you imagine doing live television yeah. and having an accident and you're so ashamed and embarrassed I'm not even going to tell you my co-host so I sit there and sweat it out and have a bloody panic attack on live television wow. instead of them just understanding it and me being able to say as soon as the break comes you know I got to go yeah. right and it, it's it's horrible for your own mental health to put yourself through that so let's talk about it when you go public uh, like the medical condition it was on TV in yeah. front of a lot of people <laughs> what happened exactly what what make you go and say it in front of a lot of people that was very spontaneous okay not planned S not planned <laughs> so i was doing i was in ottawa yeah uh hosting a, a show called daytime ottawa and by chance so it was kind of a neat atmosphere there because uh, we had a big green room where all of the guests gathered it was a one-hour live show so we could go there and meet them all so all the guests would arrive at 10:30, and then from 11 until noon we would do the live show yeah. so at 10:30, they're all there and it had this great buzz so everyone's talking and networking with each other and one of my guests on the show is the executive director of the canadian continents foundation yeah. And so she's talking about what they do. And so, of course, I know what she's talking about, right? And I turn to her and I, at one point, I say, by the way, just, just like that. Just like that. I say, by the way, uh, I suffer from chronic fecal incontinence I have since birth. And like her eyes just like popped out of her head. <laughs> okay. She was like, what? <laughs> You're a live television host and you suffer from fecal incontinence. Yes. Like, yeah, yeah, I have, you know, my whole life. And she goes, would you like, it would be mean the world to us if you would share it on television. Have you ever shared it before? And I said, no, I've, I've never shared it. It's not something I wanted to yes. shout from the rooftop. So she asked me if I'd share it. And, and I did. I shared it live on the air that day during that segment. And then I followed up by sharing it on social media, on, on Facebook and on, on Twitter. And then uh, the amount of support was incredible. It was, it was overwhelming. How do you feel like, how do you feel like when, I, when you say it after it just came out of your mouth, how do you feel? Uh, I had two feelings. Oh, yeah? So the, the first was a, a big sense of relief. Okay. I felt a great weight off my shoulders like, okay, finally I've just said it to everybody. Because, you know, I started saying it to more and more people. Yeah. But again, you know, close friends. Close, it's close not friend, like, yeah. yeah. Um, so a sense of relief 
And then a few days later, there was one thing that dawned on me. And it's comical. Like, I laugh about it. But, it, I mean, at the time, it was like, oh, my God. Yeah. This is a big deal. Uh -huh. So I thought, now, you know, when I'm at a cocktail party, at a dinner party, at an elevator or anything, right? Any public <coughs> domain that I'm in yeah. and somebody, you know, lets one go everyone's going to blame me. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like everyone's like, oh, it's the incontinent guy, right? Right? Yeah. I was like, so I'm, I'm going to be that guy. So I, and then I used to joke with friends, you know, that you know, people at a cocktail party just come up, you know, stand beside me, chat for a while if they have to let one go and then just walk away <laughs> and, and leave me to take the blame. So that was the only thing, you know? I just okay. thought, oh man, that's going to be a bit of a bummer, but you but, know. After all the uh, after all the messages uh, I, I received over the coming weeks and then even months, um, it didn't bother me anymore. So for you, it was the right decision. Was, yeah. No regrets. It was the right thing to do. No regrets. No. Thank okay. so, you, because I read that you and at that moment you were ready to say it. Yeah, I was. I mean, and that's that's what I said to Jackie. Uh, you know, when she asked me. If I'd share it live on the show that day, I just went, yeah, I think I'm ready. Yeah, this is uh, this is the right time for me. I was in a, I was in a good place. Um, you know, I was uh, starting to become more confident. I think doing live television is something I dreamed of doing when mm -hmm. I was a child. I wanted to get into film and television. The fact that I was I was doing something that I thought may be impossible. Uh, just because I wouldn't have the confidence to do it, but I, I fell in love with theater in uh, in grade eight, and then it continued in in high school. I took a break from it when I graduated from high school, yes. but got back into it doing uh, murder mystery dinner theater and playing all these characters, and then I was doing uh, independent films and voices for video games, and it just started increasing my confidence. And I think that was that was important, and that's something my parents did for me too, okay. right, to help my confidence. I had two things, a lack of confidence and an abundance of energy. So they had to find, you know, something, something. for me to concentrate on. And sports was the first thing I did. I mean, I played everything. I played rugby and football and soccer and basketball. And uh, I did uh, competitive swimming. I did diving. Uh, I just immersed myself in everything. And then when I, when I started to get passionate about theater, you know, I joined like the assembly committee at school yeah. and I, I was writing plays and acting in plays and directing plays. And uh, I, I fell in love with it. Again, great confidence booster, right? To get in f up in front of your entire school. Um, even, even after, you know, again, even in high school, you know, people started finding out about it. Yeah. Um, I didn't let it bother me as much because I think I, I had that momentum going for me where I was gaining more confidence in myself. It seems to me that you have like a relentless, when you start something, you go all in and that's where you put, put your focus, you know, and yeah. expose and then uh, TV and everything. You go all in. Is that a way to just really focus and not think about anything else? Yeah, I think you have to get in that in the flow, right? You, you, have, to, you have to be in the moment. Um, it's one thing I love about interviewing people is when they come on the show, you sit there and you, you think about nothing else, right? Yeah. It's just you and that person or, you know, maybe it's two or three people at, at times as well. But you just get, and I felt theater was the same thing for me, right? I, I don't, there, there's nothing else I have to think about. Yes. Sports, again, was the same type of thing. I mean, when you're playing, your mind doesn't wander. It, it's got to be in the moment at all times. And living in the moment is becoming more and more difficult. We were talking yes, before, right? Phones it's, and everything. Yeah, it's becoming <laughs> uh, it's becoming tougher and tougher yeah, for tougher. people. And they say before you, because you just told me that you were ready to really talk about it in public, but to get there, you just suffered a lot. I think mm -hmm. in your twenties, there was a time that you really, really were unhappy, you know, and then you were trying to uh, almost kill yourself. Yeah, I, uh, I planned my own suicide. Um, I was in my uh, yeah late teens, early 20s. I was living with my best friend Gary Fields at the time, who was uh, the first person that wasn't family or a close friend of the family that I, that I actually sat down and, and told him. And uh, that was an important moment for me to tell yes. Gary. You know, I think I was 12 years old, maybe. Uh, and he was very accepting. Like he just went, well, I don't care, right? <laughs> yes. that, was, that was his answer. <laughs> it was friend, it, yeah. it was such a beautiful moment. But yeah, so you know, I, 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 
in my TEDx, I tell the story of how much I wanted to find that best friend, right? Yes. You know, my brother was my best friend. Yeah. But I think it's special to find someone sort of outside the family that you've had no connection with before. You find that ultimate stranger that you connect with. And Gary was that stranger for me. And then as I got into high school, what did I want? I wanted a girlfriend. Yeah. And uh, I had a really difficult time with, with intimacy. Yes. And as desperate as I was for a girlfriend, I did have a few girlfriends. Yes. Um, it scared the hell out of me to be intimate with a, with a girl or a woman. Uh, as soon as we started getting intimate, I would stop talking to them. I'd start, stop all communication. I wouldn't answer the phone calls. I wouldn't call them. So inevitably, inevitably they'd break up with me. Yes. I would never break up with them you because I was so desperate <laughs> okay. you know, to, to be loved. You yeah. know? Um, but I thought they, any girl would think I was disgusting, you know, because if we're in an intimate moment and I have an accident, what is she going to do? But think? it never happened. It never happened that you, you never happened those kind of situations with those. I've had, I had situations where, you know, I'd sort of have to take off, okay. um, to the washroom kind of thing, but I, I never explained why, you know, okay. just, I would say, I'm, you know, I wasn't feeling well, sorry, I was sick, I, you know, I was nauseous or had a stomach ache or yes. something like that. But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't even get to the, oftentimes get to the point where, you know, we'd even come close to getting naked together because, uh, you know, and I wasn't really happy with my body image either. I was a very skinny yeah. um, kid my, my whole life uh, up until about nine years ago. Uh, until I met this personal trainer, George, who's just helped change my life too. I, I weighed 129 pounds. No way. You know, at almost, uh, I'm 5'11 and a half, and okay. I weighed 129 pounds, very okay. underweight my, my whole life. Uh, but yeah, in those, in that time, um, I wasn't just unhappy, I was depressed. Depressed. I was self medicating alcohol and drugs, you know, smoking a lot of marijuana, drinking a lot. Uh, I planned to take my own life. I had bought some pills. Um, I took a, a plastic bag and an elastic and had it on my, my side table. And I'd had a lot to drink uh, that, that day. And I was lying in bed and, you know, preparing. Gary was actually already asleep Yes. Uh, down the hall. And, uh, you know, I was extremely upset. You know, it's... Uh, I was crying and I uh, I just started I think I, I had a just a moment of you know you know wait a minute what if I took my own life you know how is that going to affect everybody else in my life how is that going to affect the support system right because you know, I've, I've, I've sort of learned like life I know we can be very selfish yes. but life isn't just about us Yes. Right? Life life is about every all the relationships that we have, right? And there's a there's an effect on all those relationships. And so what happens if I take my life tonight? How is that going to affect my mom and dad? Yes. My brother, my sisters, my stepmother, you know, just down the list I started going. My grandmother who is still alive. And you know, Gary's my best friend who supported me all those years and like he's down the hall. Yes. So he's going to wake up and I'm going to be dead, right? You know, that kind of thing destroys people's lives, right? I think you saw the light because most of the people that are trying to kill themselves, they, they don't see what they have. I think you saw like have people because you, since you were a kid, you had people behind you. Since yeah. you were, have all the med medical condition and before, before that happened, you just came back to, to you that have people around me. Yeah, I was fortunate because not everybody finds themselves in that position, yes. right? That's uh, that's the ugly reality of mental illness. Yes. Is it depends on where you are because it's a, a mental illness, is such an individual thing, right? Um, you know, anxiety and depression and, and you know schizophrenia. I mean, it just goes on and on, and you can't treat everybody the same way. You can't even treat everybody the same way that are suffering from depression. It's so, it's so individual. So you're right. I, I was fortunate that, you know, I had a lucid moment where I went, wait a minute, you know, I need to, I need to think about this and realize that, and I, and I, I, I kind of fooled myself for a long time. I, I pretended to be happy, yes. even though I wasn't, you yes. know, 
you know, it's not to say I was depressed at all times. I'd have very happy, joyful moments, but deep down I was in a very dark place and I, I, I wasn't happy in the position I was in, in life. And so I decided in that, in that moment that not only do I owe it to them, but okay, I have to figure something out here. You know, I have to pull myself out of this. How am I going to go about that? And I decided I'd start telling more people. And so I started sharing it with not just friends, I'd share it with acquaintances, you know. I'd share it with the odd person, colleague at work, you know. Again, I wasn't shouting it from the rooftops, but just to give myself more of a comfort zone and understanding that how important that support group was, maybe it's a good idea to start, to start building it, yeah, right? Building it, yeah. building it even more. So if, if those people meant so much to me, what if I increased that support around me what effect would that have on me? And it, it had an, an incredible effect on me. I think for any kind of medical situation, the best way to go is to communicate and talk about it. Whatever yeah. is what you have, whatever is anything, anything medical, medical conditions to communicate with the people that are around you. Yeah, and people are understanding. Yes. You know, there is always, I was always fearing that, you know, if I shared it, people, oh, are going to find me disgusting. And you know what, you know, end a relationship. It's never happened. Never happened. Not once. Never happened, right? And like I put myself through years and years of that and not once did it happen. Right? But I think, you know, there, there has to, you know, I had to mature too, right? Just like, you know, I, I wouldn't tell kids when I was going through elementary school because they don't have the capacity to understand and think about it logically and realize that it's, oh, it's not your fault. You know what? Don't worry about it. Let's go out and play hide and go seek. They don't have that capacity, whereas we as adults for the most part, yeah, <laughs> have, have the capacity to do that. I, I think one of your biggest strengths is that you communicate well your medical condition, you know? And when you went public, what happened after that? You, you, um, you become an ambassador of the Canadian Continents Foundation. That's right. So what is your role with the Canadian Foundation? I think it's really to share my story, okay. to help raise awareness, to yeah. let other people know that there are other people like you out there, uh, to give an understanding of how many people there are that, that are living with incontinence around the world. Uh, yeah. The estimates are 400 million people. Yeah. That's a lot of people. And to raise a, a lot of awareness about some issues that some people haven't thought of before, you know. Um, why do people not leave their homes, right? What, what is the issue there? Well, because, you know, embarrassing incidents can, can happen to people. Uh, people often, you know, have asked me, you know, what kind of products to use to use protection and so forth. I've, I've always just used toilet paper. I sort of make a pad in, in my yeah. underwear and, and use toilet paper. There are a lot of excellent products out there. However, the problem is, and I, I can speak just from a male perspective, yes. is if I bring a product into uh, to a friend's house for a dinner party yeah. okay or i go out to dinner at a, at a public restaurant and i need to change right I, I go into the stall and change and that's private that's all well and good but what do i do with the rest with the rest right like i'm not going to walk out of the stall in front of other men and like oh uh <laughs> excuse me i just had to put this in the garbage right it's embarrassing yes it is Right, but you know, people people don't think about that. There's and then uh, the other thing. And by the way, a woman that I've been in contact with, yeah. uh, who sits on a board that that talks about um, incontinence and the issues and so forth, has approached government in the UK. Um, this is something she had thought about for a long time, and she saw my speech in Rome, and you know, just felt sort of overwhelmed with the fact of how how much this affects people. Yeah. And I had brought up the idea of, you know, it's very difficult when you can't get into a public washroom. Like sometimes, like if I have an emergency situation, a store isn't going to allow me to go into their store and use their washroom. You know, unless it's a fast food place, right? Yeah, yeah. If I go to a retail store down the street here and yeah. say, I'm sorry, I have an emergency. Can I use your washroom? They don't let you use it. I know. Why not? Okay. Right. So we wanted to have, you know, I'd like to have some kind of encouragement for people just to, you know, they always bring up, you know, well, you know, what if it's somebody, you know, wants to come into my washroom and do drugs and that is less than 0.1% of the situation <laughs> okay. that will ever happen. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. What if a homeless person comes in? 
so what if a homeless person comes in? They're just using their your washroom, yeah. right? You know, like we have to be a little more sympathetic for, for people. And that can be in, in a lot of different ways. So that was one thing uh, that I started talking about is the fact that if, if you want to, if you want people to get out of isolation, you have to give them opportunities, right? Uh, the other is isolation. Isolation. Right? I can speak personally because I isolated myself many, many times yes. over the years because of my condition, but people are isolating themselves for a number of reasons yes. around the world. Uh, the Red Cross has called isolation an epidemic. epidemic yeah. They say that 10% of the world's population feels lonely and isolated. That, that's scary, man. Yeah. That is a scary number of people, right? And for the Red Cross to call it an epidemic, you know how serious it is. Yes. And then in the UK, they felt that it was so serious that they actually presented a minister of loneliness. Oh, wow. The first country in the world to do that. And there's so much people around and we feel lonely. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> right? We were talking about that off camera. Yeah. You're in some of the biggest cities in the world and people feel lonelier than they do in a small town. Yeah. Right? True. Because we're, we're not talking to each other. Uh, we're, we don't have that human connection as much as we used to, that, that spiritual connection for many different reasons. There's so many distractions. Like we just become strangers all the way. Nobody knows anyone and it's, it becoming normal and normal. I don't know. Yeah, I, I would suggest to people that, you know, when you're with friends and you're with family and, you know, you're with your children, you're with your spouse, uh, if, if you take away those distractions, you'll find something really special and really beautiful of, of just sitting there and having conversations. You remember we used to have conversations where you'd say, oh my God, what's that actor's name? And all of us around the room, right, would go, oh my God, trying to figure it out. Now we, now we grab our phone and we go, oh, the actor's name is this, right? And it just kills conversation, right? Like we can't even take like five minutes <laughs> anymore to try to, you know, work our way through something, right? Was that? Oh, yeah, let me check. Yeah, let me just check. You know, I don't know. It's it's an incredible phenomenon. Uh, there, there's, you know, you used to, um, I don't know if you know a motivational speaker by the name of uh, Simon Sinek. Yes, I do. I do. Love him. Yeah. He's incredible. And he has, he, he has this great uh, piece when he talks about uh, being at a meeting. Remember when you used to be at a meeting? Uh, well, no, first he shows the example of this is what a meeting's like today, yeah, yeah. right? You, you're, we're sitting in the office, right? And you and I are waiting for the meeting. Yeah. Right? And then the, the, the chair comes in, you know, they're ready for the meeting, and we all put our phone down. <laughs> right? And we start the meeting, yeah, right? Yeah. And then we go like this. You know? And then we like, okay, yeah, no. <laughs> right? And as soon as it gets boring, we got. Oh. Yeah, you're back on it. And oh, you know, sorry, I don't mean to be rude. I just, it's, I just, it's just a quick thing. You know? <laughs> But it is rude, right? We're like, oh, sorry, it's rude, but I have you know. to like, and, and the other people they understand. Okay, no problem. Yeah, yeah, because they'll do the same thing. But then he goes on to say, remember what it was like before we had cell phones, getting ready for a meeting. And I would say, oh, Hugo, I heard your mom was in the hospital. How how's she doing? And you know, oh, and then we'd have like an actual con. Oh, your son graduated. Uh, I understand from grade six. You know. Congratulate! Like we'd have these kind of conversations. We'd get to know each other. It's because we were forced to talk. You know, we didn't have an escape. So, oh, yeah. May, may as well talk. You know. And it's not to say uh, I'm not guilty of it. I, you know, I do it. I, you know, we we have meetings at work, and I, I'm like, eh. you know, some of some of us even bring in laptops, and we're working <laughs> during a meeting. Right? Yeah. We're like having, having conversations. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So your role as, a, as the ambassador of the Canadian Continuous Foundation is to bring awareness to people. That's right. To, to do uh, speak at conferences, yeah. to bring more awareness uh, to the medical field as well, you know, not just, uh, not just the public. Uh, to work on initiatives, to try to um, better support people that are living with incontinence to provide more resources for them. You know, we're always collecting resources. I mean, it's a big challenge because, you know, how do people reach out these days? It's social media, but yeah. it's very difficult in, in this situation because, you know, if, if somebody follows us on Twitter, it's basically them publicly saying, I live with incontinence. 
People don't want to do that. Do you know what I mean? If people, you know, like our Facebook page, and I, I'm not saying that people are necessarily going to recognize that. I just think, you know, just trying to think of it logically, if, if I wasn't in the position I'm in now, if I go back 15 years ago and social media is big, would I follow Twitter and like the Facebook page of the Canadian Continents Foundation? No. Well, Probably not. Yeah. I might, you know, if I, if I see them, I might, you know, follow them, uh, you know, just click on some of the information that they have or go to the website. But people don't want to talk about it, right? It's a stigma. It, it, it's, it's, I like to think of it as maybe it's that next uh, one after talking about mental health. Yeah. Maybe it's the next stigma that we're going to start talking about more. Because, you know, in developing countries, if, you ha- if you're living with incontinence, you're ostracized. Yeah, you, you can't get a you, job. You you're kicked out of your community, yeah. right? I mean, your spouse will stop loving you. I'm not saying in all situations, but in the developing world, from the conferences I've been to and people talking about it, the stigma there... It's worse. You think it's bad in you know in Western society? It, it, it's worse, and it's destroying people's lives. True. And it, and there's no reason for it. But you hear like you you hear a lot of stories like the lady that stayed at home from 28 years. Yeah. Yeah. Woman reached out to me after I went public and told me that she hadn't left her house in 28 years except to go to medical appointments and to get groceries. Yeah. You imagine feeling that ashamed and embarrassed that you, you can't even leave your home. Uh, another woman reached out, said her father hadn't gone to a, a wedding, a funeral, uh, a family gathering of any kind in a year. Uh, people telling me that they haven't told their doctor yet. They haven't even told their spouse that they're living with incontinence. That, that's not helping, no. right? But if you think that you're alone, if you don't realize there's 400 million people, I, that, that's part of the that's part of my my role is to make sure that more people are aware and especially the people that are living with it so they go oh okay and and to be an example listen I, I'm doing a live three-hour television show yeah five days a week I, I I do public events I MC things I go to charity events you know I I, I go to the theater I go see comedy I, I go to dinner parties doing all of these things and yes, every once in a while, I'll have a difficult moment. Yes. You know, it'll be an embarrassing moment. There's, I promise you that's going to happen. I, I can't guarantee anything other than that will happen for sure. But you know what? People don't care. You know, they, they, they really don't. They're, people are understanding. And if you get, you know, it's not to say I haven't had people talking behind my back as an adult. Yeah. Right. It, it's happened. You know, um, but I have more people supporting me than more people talking about my behind my back and snickering at me and, and making fun of it. For for anyone that is is there inside the house, you recommend them to get out and just get out and yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, the worst thing that's going to happen is what I explained, right? Is that I had diarrhea so bad I, I tucked my pants into my socks, and that's happened many times. Happened to me at the Turkish embassy in Ottawa. Okay. Okay. Like I went, I was, I was a grown man in my forties, and uh, something I ate, I maybe didn't go well with me. I think I had dessert, which I was telling you I shouldn't eat sugar. <laughs> yeah. But I, here I was, right, putting myself in the position, oh, I better be polite. I'm at the Turkish embassy. You yeah. know, instead of just politely saying, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I can't eat sugar. I don't eat dessert. I eat it. I suffer the consequences. And then I have one of the most embarrassing moments of my adult life where oh. I have to tuck my pants into my saw. I went to the washroom. Security actually followed me to the toilet. <laughs> like I was, I was horrified. Like I'm, you know, like, what am I doing in your bathroom, man? Like, just, can you leave me alone? Yeah, yeah. And then they follow me back. So I, I literally walk back into the dining room. Yeah. My co-host at the time, Lois Lee, is in there. Yeah. Stupidly, I haven't told Lois about my medical condition okay. yet. It's not that I didn't want to tell. I just hadn't gotten to the point yet. I didn't have a, a comfortable moment with her yet, right? We were still sort of new to each other kind of thing. So there I am, like, I'm down on one knee, tucking... <laughs> my pants into my socks okay and telling her i've had a medical situation lois i have to go i can't explain it right now i'll explain later and i leave 
and I get in my car and I drive home and I'm just I'm covered uh, in diarrhea. Yeah. And I get home and I shower and you know obviously I wash my clothes as yeah, best I yeah. can before I put it in the laundry shower and everything and I go to bed and I cry. You know, I'm 43, 44 years old. My wife comes home and I'm, I'm crying in bed. She said, what happened? I explained the whole thing. <clears throat> so that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's going to happen. It happens, yeah. Right? But none of those people ever had a bad thing to say about it. None of them questioned why I left so quickly. And the Turkish embassy continued to send me invitations to come and visit the embassy. Yes, and people, you know, forget also. They have something they, they don't really remember. They we say, oh, yeah, that happened. As long as it's not something that big, you know. I think we, we it's people inside the heads that create situations that may happen or not. Yeah, well, that, that's the other thing, right, is I'm so glad you pointed that out. Stop having the negative conversation all yeah. the time. Well, what if I go out? Yeah. Well... Yes, <laughs> I get it. There's a possibility, yeah. but that, that's not because you know what anxiety is is also going to affect you, yes, right? Stress. Anxiety and stress affects you physically. So if you have the combination of already having a physical disability and then you combine it with anxiety <clears throat> and stress, it's only going to get worse. And I know it. It's going to take practice. You have to be mindful. You, you have to have that conversation with yourself. But change the conversation from, oh my God, what's going to happen to, cannot wait to go out and have yeah. a great time. Change your mind. Yeah. Positive, yeah. yeah glad. I'm glad we talk about this because uh, it's really a, a, a taboo subject for most yeah. people. But I'm glad we have this conversation. And before we go to the second part of the podcast, I want to I wanna also talk about your career. I also know that you got the, what's the, the queen... The Queen Diamond Jubilee Medal. Mm. What's that exactly? That, uh, so the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal. That is handed out uh, to Canadians that have had um, a huge contribution to their community, yeah. uh, to various charities and so forth. And that was, that was a, a really special moment, an unexpected moment. Um, I was doing, uh, I was on Daytime Ottawa. Yeah. And uh, a friend of mine <clears throat> who I had been doing some charity events for, Yvonne, for, for quite a few years. She's a sad story. She, her, her daughter was, was murdered and left behind her, her, uh, her beautiful daughter. Yes. Um, and it was, you know, she was uh, devastated, of course. And I had done some of these charity events, uh, golf tournaments for her to raise money for a trust fund for her granddaughter. Yes. And she came on the show to, to talk about uh, her initiative and her organization. And halfway through it, uh, she presented me. She had, she had nominated me. Oh, she nominated Yeah, so that's you can you nominate Canadians. That was before going public with your medical That's community. right. Okay. That's right. So okay. she had nominated me uh, for the work I had done in the community okay. and my contributions to various charities and nonprofit organizations. And... Um, you, as you know, I'm an emotional person. Uh, she moved me to tears on the show. I, 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 I couldn't believe it. I, I was just so humbled. You know, you, you offer and volunteer your time because you, you, you love it, yeah. right? Because yeah. you, you enjoy doing it because you see how meaningful it is, it is to people, right? And when you do that, you know, the thanks that you get is, is more than enough. Yeah. Right, and so Yvonne nominates me, and uh, they accepted her nomination of me, and she she presented it to me. And you know, funny enough, I, I I went home that night, and I said to my wife, you know, look at all these incredible people that I've met over over the year that have done so much more than I've ever done. Like I'm I'm not you know worthy of something like this. And I start naming people, and she's like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just point out the hundreds of hours that, yeah. that you've contributed, right? Yeah. To and, and how much people appreciate it. Like just stop being, you know, so humble that you can't appreciate and accept something so like this. And accept, yeah. some and you know, I kinda said, Okay, you know, and if I if I look back, uh, wow, what a what what a great recognition. Who gave you the medal? Not the Queen. 
the queen? Well, the, the, the queen is who, you know, it's, it's officially from the queen. So, and coincidentally, uh-huh. ironically, my wife received the, um, the, the queen's gold medal for her contributions uh, because she she was in the military okay, the Canadian yeah. forces for 10 years yeah. uh, with the Grenadier Guards here in Montreal and then uh, ended up becoming the first female sergeant in Canadian forces history in yeah. the infantry uh, so she received the medal and then you know years later I, I would receive it as well it was pretty special for us special yeah all right so before we go to the second part of the podcast I just want to let people where they can research out to you where, uh, what platforms are you on Okay, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter just under my name, Derek Fage. I'm also on, on Facebook, and shortly I'll have uh, a website, website coming up too. Uh, more about, not necessarily a, about myself as a, as a television host, but as an MC. I do, I'm a live auctioneer, yeah. I'm a professional speaker, so that's what that's going to be uh, concentrated on. All right, we're going to put all the links on the description, and also recommend to go and watch the TEDx that Derek uh, did. Because I, I did and it was really good. Thank you very much. Right. So Derek, we talk a lot about your medical condition. When I want talk, I want to talk about you being the host of Red Cross Television. Okay. You said that you wanted to be on TV. You want to be an actor. How do you became like a host? What happened? When that's when was that moment to say, okay, I'm I'm going to be a TV host. <laughs> Uh, I didn't know I was going to be a TV host. <laughs> I my my sort of dream was to be an actor in film and television. Yeah. And I told you, you know, I'd done murder mysteries and uh, sort of built a, a pretty good resume between independent films and voices for video games and murder mysteries. I did some local television commercials in Ottawa, and then one day there was an ad in the paper looking for a, the, a host of this new life of a new host for this lifestyle show called Daytime Ottawa. Yeah. My stepmother calls me up and goes, hey, listen, this is what you're passionate about, television, you know, you'd be great at this, you, you know, you, you have the personality for it. I'm like, ah, well, you know, you know, the deadline's in three days, I don't have a video camera. And she's like, listen, uh, yeah. your father will get a video camera from one of his friends, <laughs> call one of your, you know, acting buddies and have them come over and, and do it. So I put together an audition tape. Um, just interviewing a friend of mine, Jamie yes. Douglas, who is a, a great actor in Ottawa, and uh, I submitted it. And very shortly thereafter, I think 48 hours later after I submitted it, and my resume, of course, I had built up, as I said, a pretty decent resume. Yeah. And they called and said, hey, you know what, we're really interested in you. Can you come in to have sort of a live uh, audition? I did, and uh, I auditioned, and then they, again, 48 hours later, again, called me back. Well, I think you said that you were very hesitant to take out the role because, yeah, no, that wasn't really what you want to do, but there's a moment they told you, Derek, you can be yourself as a host. You can be authentic, and that's when he went. Oh, okay, well, I should. Be. Well, what better compliment, yeah. right? Like we want to hire you to be you. Yeah. Okay. Like, oh, what? Really? <laughs> just be myself? And they're like, Yeah, that's who we want. We just want Derek. Just, just be yourself. And it's funny because you're, we're our own worst critics, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, and and that was actually a competition. Okay. So there were I, I competed against four other people. We each had we, we each got an opportunity to showcase ourselves on a one hour show live. I've never done live TV before, okay. along with some of the others that were there. Um, but I ended up getting the most votes online. They had an online voting system, okay. and then management had the final say, and they called me up and and offered me the job. I was working uh, at my dad's accounting firm firm at the time, so. I basically went into the managing partner, Jerry Levitz, and said, hey, you know, what my, because they were letting me, you know, audition and do that sort of thing, so they knew what my, my dream was. And I had to ask him, you know, can I, can I split time between here and, and the television station? Luckily, it was only a few blocks away. Yeah. And uh, Jerry kindly said, yeah, let's uh, talk to some of the other staff members and see if we can fill in your time, because I would come in the morning, and then I would leave for about two and a half hours and then come back. Okay. I offered Jerry that, you know, I'll work overtime. I'll still do all the same tasks I'm doing now. And he said yes. And then that first year, I, I worked both jobs. Yeah. I made $50 a show. Okay. Uh, second year, I did both jobs. I made $65 okay. a show. Third year, I made $100 a show, okay. still doing both jobs. Okay. <laughs> all right. And I, was, I, I would beg my supervising producer, Lynn Whitehead, probably once every two or three months that if I could ever do this full time, like I'll, I'll do anything, right? And then um, my co-host TL Raider ended up becoming my co-host because it went from uh, Catherine Mel- uh, Marion to Melanie Serjak to TL. 
And when TL came on board, I think they saw the chemistry that we had and uh, they liked us so much that they offered both of us full time. Yeah. Uh, it was a difficult decision. I took a big, big pay cut. You know, I'd been working at my dad's firm for 18 years. Okay. So, you know, I was making a good living. I had good benefits. I would leave all that to go and do community television. Mm. Um, who had great benefits in their own right, but, yeah. you know, certainly a salary cut. Um, never regretted it. Never regretted it. No. And now, now today you're the host of Breakfast Television on City. That's right. So how do you feel about him like working at a TV community now being one of the biggest hosts on TV? It's it, when they offered me the job, uh, it was I couldn't believe it. You move up from Ottawa to Montreal. That's right. That's right. And that that was a big challenge in itself, yeah. right? Because all my family was was in Ottawa. Um, I had uh, my daughter was from a previous relationship with with shared custody yeah. so I knew that I couldn't bring my daughter here you know I had a stepson again yeah. that you know couldn't bring here my wife being is from Montreal and again you know she was uh, had a, a, a job at the federal government uh, that she couldn't give up so I do a lot of commuting back and forth between Ottawa and Montreal. The nice thing is too that my wife comes here yes. as well and stays with me. My daughter comes here in the summer and, and stays with me quite a bit. Uh, and my family loves the fact that they have a place to come to in Montreal yeah, now because they all love Montreal. So it's, uh, again, it, it was, a, it was a, a difficult decision on one level and an easy decision when it came to career, right? Yes. I mean, this is what you aspire to. Uh, this is one of the biggest markets in the entire country. And I had already met the, the crew. I'd already met the on-air personalities. I love them. And, you know, in those last uh, two years in Ottawa, I was producing the show by myself. Yeah. Um, I was hosting it with a rotation of guest co-hosts, so somebody different every day, okay. Monday to Friday, you know, doing a, a live television show producing that by myself. That was 35 guests a week I was booking on my own, plus doing charity work, you know, plus, you know, going to social events, plus having, you know, everything. to balance family and life. Yeah, I was doing everything. And then you, I came here uh, to replace Joanne Vrakis when she was on vacation and when her mother unexpectedly passed away. And I saw this team, uh, yeah. right? Of all, and you know, Ottawa was great. The volunteers I worked with uh, became great friends of mine. I love the atmosphere, but you know, I came into a team of professionals, right, with multiple producers, yes. uh, with professional cameramen and audio and graphics and director and uh, you know, on-air hosts that have been in the business for years and years. Yeah. It was refreshing not to have to do everything by yourself, and I felt so welcome. Um, it makes your job more easy. Yeah, 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 for sure. And I, I got along with everyone. It was uh, it was a good fit. It's from uh, six to nine, huh? The show. That's right, six to nine, Monday to Friday on so City TV. One of the things as a host, you have to wake up early. Oh man! <laughs> everyone always asks too. Do you ever get used to it? You don't. <laughs> what time do you wake up? I get up between three fifteen and three thirty every morning. So, so I go to bed at about eight thirty. I usually go to bed at eight. Read for as long as I can, because yeah. reading, I, I don't know why, but it puts me to sleep. So okay. I read and then like five pages in, I'm gone. <laughs> but I usually go to bed, yeah, 8, 8.30 and, uh, and then get up at between 3.15 and 3.30. I like to get to work early. Yeah. Uh, I'm usually there by about 4.15 in the morning. Uh, I, I I get to walk to work, which is great. So I don't, I don't it's use- It's just near here? Yeah, yeah, okay. it's just about a 10, 15 minute walk from here, which is fantastic. So how did you prepare? You arrived there at 4 o'clock, so what's your preparation, your routine before going on TV? So when I arrive at the station, I, I go through a lot of the newspapers. I usually go through three in particular, Montreal Gazette, the Globe and Mail, National Post. You know, I do a, a news search to a Google news search just to find out what's happening in the world, to be prepared to talk about different things. We do what's called our BT newsstand every day. Yeah. So Joanne usually checks uh, what's making headlines on the French side, of French newspapers. Yeah. I check what's making headlines in the English newspapers and we try to do things that you know reflect Montreal in our community but we also talk about international news national news as well if or even sometimes it's a quirky story you know just something a little different than the usual news we try to pull out okay. 
Uh, and we do that sort of twice during the show. So, you know, I spend a good amount of time because you want to get something that you know isn't already going to be in our headline news. Yeah. So you want to find something on that kind of page three, something you know, instead of page surprise. one. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, then I review all of the guests I'm going to be interviewing. So our producers put together a package for us and uh, I review it. Uh, I usually prepare cue cards for each of my guests just yeah. so that I don't often use it, but I find if I type it out, it, uh, I retain it, yeah. yeah. Uh, we have a, a meeting at five o'clock every morning, so okay. we go through um, my newsstand items, Joanne's newsstand, newsstand items, we go through our entertainment, because we like to do local entertainment yeah. of what's happening here in Montreal. Uh, we do some national packages too when it comes to entertainment, but uh, we like to put a, a better focus here, what's going on locally. Uh, our news writer, either uh, Andrew, who's our regular news writer, or Tula, who does some of our news writing when uh, Andrew's away, they go through all the headlines that they're going to be talking about. Okay. Just so that, you know, if the rest of the team notices something that may be big that's missing, usually that's Joanne, where she's like, hey, you know what, did you... You know, did you hear about this story? Uh, this is, or this is a big story. We we got to make sure we include it yes. in there. So that's a great sort of brainstorming for us. And then our producer, Freddie, who kind of chairs the meeting, he goes over all the guests that are coming on the show. Our director is there as well, and our graphics person, so that if anything comes up, okay. you know, oh wait a minute, that's a kitchen segment. We didn't realize it was. We okay, we'll make sure that you know everybody on the floor recognizes it's a kitchen segment, so it's not a surprise. I see that your team is very organized. You have a lot of mm. you, you. You guys do your job as a host, and also you have a very big team that really can can bring a lot. But what I see also, because we're running out of time, but I just want to say that you guys do a lot of social media. Yeah. And that's great because that interacts with people. Yeah, that's it. We tried to boost that, right? Yeah. Um, when, you're, when you're busy doing a three-hour show, there's a lot of moving parts and mm -hmm. so forth. But th that's, that's the reality right now, right? People want to hear from you. They want to see sort of behind the scenes. They want to know what's coming up. So... Uh, in particular on Instagram, follow all of us, by the way, Joanne Vrakis, Catherine Verdon Diamond, Derek Fage, Breakfast Television Montreal. Uh, we're trying to do more of that and engage with, uh, with the audience and our viewers. And we love to hear from people too, right? We're always looking for new ideas and yeah. what people are looking for. We, we do city news at 6 and 11 o'clock yeah. as well. So we certainly have you know, people reaching out to us and sharing their local stories. Uh, a lot of them, you know, very serious stories about, you know, some of the issues that, that people are having here in our in our own community and you go to any challenge on social media you did the face app remember i saw your oh face my God, the face, the face app. App, yeah. <laughs> i look like bob barker <laughs> from the price is right man like oh yeah. my god anyone that has listened to this i don't know in 2000 something face app what a phenomenon everyone was doing face app oh yeah but be careful how you use it too right there's a lot of stories out there right now it's a it's a, actually um a Russian, Russian app, company, yeah. There's yeah, a. I don't know. I'm just saying, Mike Yanni, who's our tech expert, he 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 had a warning for everybody. Just oh, yeah. make sure, yeah, and make sure you put your settings in correctly and so because they have access to to all of your photos, right? Yes. Okay. They have access to and and they have access to use your photo in any commercial purposes later on. So oh, I'm God. just putting out that warning. I know it's a lot of fun, but keep that in mind. All right, Derek, I really appreciate it. And you know what? I, I want to have you on a second episode later on on the podcast because I know we have more to talk. We didn't have to, a lot of time to talk about it today, but if I can have another interview later on. I'd love to. We will, yeah, it's we will. been great. I yeah. appreciate your time and your, your journey and your story, and I appreciate the audience really uh, appreciate it also. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks, Hugo. Okay.